welcome to the Bio Breakdown podcast. On this podcast, we break down interviews with researchers, authors, and professionals about their work and for everyday people. I'm your host, Chris Bandity. As usual, we're joined by co-host Randall. Hey, guys. Producer Max. Hello. And our special guest, Neil. Hi, everybody. And Neil, what do you study? So I study the spatial ecology and resource selection of a isolated vole um, down here in Arizona for the uh, University of Arizona, and I'm a master's student. Perfect. And then on this podcast, uh, because we want to prove the point that science is for everybody and like kind of discuss the different paths that people take uh, to get into, you know, research. Um, could you tell us a little bit about where your interest in like nature and science and biology come from? Yeah. Um, so I grew up here in Arizona in Tucson and um, I, my, my dad took me hunting and fishing pretty much since, you know, I could walk since he was able to take me out on those trips. Um, you know, whether it was out, hunting deer or, um, you know, fly fishing, um, that, that he was always, he was very good about bringing me with him. Um, even when I wasn't really able to participate, I was too young, you know, don't know how to fly fish when I'm (laughs) seven, but I was still there sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, where my interests in, wildlife and and just in working in the outdoors started um and then i joined the marine corps right after high school and uh i spent five years in that and while i was in the marine corps i went on two different deployments one in iraq one in afghanistan and so i got to see a lot of different two other deserts i guess that i wasn't familiar (laughs) with you know growing up in arizona we have a very, very nice desert, which I guess I didn't probably appreciate when I was younger until I went to, uh, oh, that. And then also I was in in California um, for my duty station in Death Valley. So I've been in a lot of deserts in my (laughs) life. Um, And it kind of gave me appreciation for what we, what we have here in Arizona. Um, I guess then when I got out, um, I knew I wanted to go to college and my my sister was actually a um, wildlife manager for Arizona Game of Fish. So I started talking to her about what she does for her job and, and everything. And that kind of got me thinking like, yeah, that's something I think I can do too. Um, so I started going to school for for um, wildlife conservation and management with the intention of being a, a wildlife manager. Um, and then I guess going through school and, and uh, going through all the classes and everything I and talking to my sister more and more kind of realized that I didn't want to be a wildlife manager, <laughs> uh, mainly because uh, the wildlife, at least what my sister was doing, she was in kind of the more urban areas. She was dealing with a lot of people mm-hmm. and not so much wildlife stuff. Right. And I kind of didn't like that very much. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, so... First thing I want to point out is a common thread uh, in the people that we've talked to so far that like getting kids outside and interacting with nature early is like very important. 
um, if if you know they won't, with in the perspective of like being involved with or concerned with nature, natural resources, kind of like conservation that perspective. Um, you know, we had a guest who said their grandpa also took them fishing when they were younger, and that really just like you know helped them kind yeah. of get there. Um, and that also kind of relates to like outreach processes. So like, you know, getting in schools with kids and getting them involved in science and that kind of stuff. Um, but then also, you know, like also kind of, you know, wildlife management and stuff is more managing people than, than the animals in the end of it. So I've, I, you know, that is kind of the, what people don't expect when they get into ecology or biology, wildlife management, that kind of stuff. They think, you know, I just want to be outside and drive around the wilderness for a living or whatever. But really, you just end up having to deal with people, uh, not just deal with people, but like the problem solving. You're not problem solving with animals. You end up problem solving with people. So it's really interesting that you brought that up as like a career decision, so to speak, or kind of a, a really an event or a perspective that you gained um, that influenced your like trajectory through life. Yeah. Um, I guess. So how, how did you uh, change your, did you change your career path because of, because of that? Um, well, so I guess it was kind of a combination of that. And then also uh, early on in my undergrad, uh, I, kind of just uh fumbled into this um student organization uh of the uh wildlife society and and i think it was like the second meeting that i went to that they had they they asked like who who wants to go to a national conference in pittsburgh <laughs> and like, nobody raised their hand and i was like you know i've never been to pittsburgh so <laughs> Sounds- cool i have no idea what a conference is like what that really means and <laughs> yeah. i raised my hand and you know they you know i kind of went to a you know uh, a group afterwards after the meeting was done we met afterwards because i said i was interested in everything and they're like you know don't worry about it we're gonna get it covered but the club's gonna you know cover your most of your way you might have to pay for your registration blah 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 and i was like I mean, that sounds cool. I didn't really know. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, to be perfectly honest. Um, but then, you know, I, a few months later, we we end up in Pittsburgh at this conference. And I started going to all these um, talks of, you know, everyone's research and stuff. And at first, when I really learned what conferences were, everyone's just talking, like giving sm- short lectures about their their research. I was almost like, Oh wow! Do I really want to go to a, pay money to go to a place to just sit in class again? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but once I was there, it was way more interesting than that because it's it's all current research, you know, stuff that people are currently working on, and it it I don't know, it just kind of spoke to me. I I really enjoyed a lot of the talks that I went to, and you know, I again I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just kind of going from room to room that sounded interesting, everything that was about, mm-hmm. mostly mammals. I mean, that's what I'm interested <laughs> in. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't going to many of the bird talks and stuff. Bird people. <laughs> They're crazy. Birds are real. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> that's a different All right. That's, that's a different episode. Yeah, ne- yeah next time. <laughs> but, yeah, so that was, like, my first, uh, I guess, experience into what research really is. Because I, I guess I had kind of an abstract idea 
of what wildlife research was and didn't mm-hmm. really think you know that far into it but going to that conference kind of opened my eyes to to what it was and then on top of that because i was a you know non-traditional student i was 24 23 i think when i went to this conference i was about the age of most of the grad students that were giving presentations um so i kind of found it a little easier to relate to the grad students than it was to the undergrads that i was you know there with yeah. um, so i guess interacting with them was pretty easy and mm-hmm. once i started talking to them and started talking about their research specifically like one-on-one um i just kind of thought like this is maybe something i could do which wasn't something that I, you know, if you'd asked me that, I don't know, five years previous to that, I would have said, there's no chance I'm going to grad school. <laughs> yeah. Hell no. How was, uh, how was going to school being a little bit older? Did you, was that experience, uh, like, was it a good experience or how, yeah, how was it? You know, it, it wasn't as bad as I guess I thought it was going to be. Like, I don't know that, you know, in, in the military, you hear all these stories of guys getting out and going to college and not being able to adjust and you know not um kind of reassimilating into civilian life and stuff because you just can't relate and i there was definitely some aspect of that but i think getting involved into that group uh when i did was what really kind of helped because yeah i was definitely older than most of the other students but you know once I kind of started to figure out that I was interested in research, I befriended the other people that were also interested in research. And it just kind of, you know, the age difference wasn't really much of a, a factor anymore. It was more of like, we have similar goals, you know, we can, you know, we can relate on that aspect. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the existing graduate students that were already there who were about my age, I, you know, it was easier to interact with, with the grad students than it was with the undergrads sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, as we've kind of talked about before, like finding your, like you have to go into, if this is what you want to do, you have to go into this research pathway on your own terms, right? And you got to find your own way in, which is really important because otherwise it's not like organic and you're forcing yourself into a situation where you, you're not comfortable, the people that uh, you know, you're know you supposed to be helping might not feel comfortable with you being there when they know that you don't want to do actual biological research. Uh, so that's really important. And then you know those graduate students are like a huge resource both to learn about like the research process, but also networking and actually to like build like a healthy community. Um, you know, as somebody who was in kind of like an unhealthy research community at one point in time, uh, you know, with people who just wanted that on their CV. Um, so it sounds like you found like the appropriate pathway to get into you know, doing what you wanted to do. And we talked about on another episode, which I don't think we've released yet, but it's like about conferences actually, and like going to conferences mm. and how valuable they are for just anybody, right? Like anybody can go to a conference and kind of learn about actual cutting edge research that's happening now. Um, And, like, that's extremely valuable to kind of gauge what's on the move, really, um, if that makes sense. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up um, as something that you did before, you know, knowing that research was something you were actually interested in. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> so then now at this point you're in the mindset that you want to do research. You've gone to this conference. You found like through a group, the Wildlife Society. You found a group of people who also are interested in research. Then how did that happen into you actually doing research? So uh, I mean, I guess being involved in that that group, uh, part of what that group does is kind of facilitate. Uh, uh, kind of field experiences for their for their group members. You know, they they kind of advertise when graduate students or or organizations need volunteers for stuff. And so I started going out there and volunteering on a lot of projects. And I actually got to um, <clears throat> help out with uh, bighorn sheep capture um, to reintroduce bighorn sheep into the the Catalina Mountains here in Tucson, which is a huge deal. Like, you know, if I hadn't been involved in this group, there's no way I would have been able to, to, to be a part of that. And it's kind of cool to say that, you know, there's, there's bighorn sheep up in that mountain now that didn't used to be there when I was a kid. And I got to be a part of that. Um, and so between that and, and I mean, I did a a lot of volunteering. Um, I kind of wanted to, differentiate myself I guess from a lot of the other um people that I might be oh this is going to sound kind of cutthroat but it's not how I really intended it <laughs> all the so, extra credit the the thing is with, with being a veteran in in wildlife uh if you're trying for federal jobs you get what's called veteran preference and it kind of it, it almost feels like cheating. Like that's, you know, I kind of feel that way when I, when I click that button, like, yeah, I'm a veteran when I'm applying for jobs and stuff. Um, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be getting jobs just because I was a veteran. I wanted to make sure that I was a well-qualified person. I want to be getting a job because I was qualified for it, not necessarily because I was a veteran. So I put myself out there and I tried to do as many volunteer jobs as, as I possibly could. And then, um, I ended up getting a job on campus with a um, with a lab, um, the the Kaprowski lab, and I was a intern for them for about two years of my undergrad, and I was just helping different graduate students um, with their with their research. I, the first student I was with was uh, Max Mozilla, and he was studying uh, flying squirrels down in San Bernardino, which. Oddly enough, the mountain that he was studying them on was the mountain right next to the base that was stationed <laughs> at. So I'd already been there. Um, it was just kind of a weird coincidence. And it was really cool because I you know, went to that mountain once when I was stationed there and went fishing. And it was all right, but it was really yeah. crowded. It's California. <laughs> did you see um, any, uh, any flying squirrels there? We did, but it, it took the entire summer for us to see them. And we, we went out, tried to find them several times. We could never find them until finally... This woman who was in the same area trying to research bats, or sorry, she's a bat researcher, came out to uh, record the ultrasonic uh, vocalizations of the flying squirrels, uh-huh. and she had night vision goggles. <laughs> so that was how we were able to finally see them, because you know we were going out with spotlights trying to trying to you know spot them that way, and it just didn't work. Did she steal those? Yeah. From- no, I don't think so. <laughs> They weren't as high quality as, oh, okay, as those okay. ones were. Yeah, okay. um, yeah, it would have been great if we had those. <laughs> yeah, you should have brought them back with you. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have. Um, but yeah, we finally saw some. It was literally like the last weekend we were there. We were there all summer long. 
Um, but that was really cool watching them glide through the darkness. It was that was a really cool experience. Um, but then after that, uh, I started working for another graduate student, Amanda Veals, on her project. She was studying the spatial ecology of gray foxes. Um, so she was putting uh, radio collars on them and tracking them around, um, you know, trapping them clearly, and and um, tracking them, which I had a blast doing that. She was also doing some some camera work, so putting out um, wildlife cameras for some occupancy study as well. Um, so I got my first introduction into spatial ecology through that project, um, and also in my first kind of um, so I, I had worked with or I had used wildlife cameras before on like a hunting sort of level, mm-hmm. um, but never on the level of, you know, 40, a 40 camera grid. <laughs> um, you know, it's easy when you've got one or two cameras. Yeah. It's not that hard to, you know, keep up with batteries and all that. Oh, yeah. But once you start using them in research, it's a whole whole nother monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so, I also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, uh, there's a little bit of a delay here. Um, so you say spatial uh, equality, is that right? Sorry, ecology. Spatial ecology. Ecology. Um, so what exactly does that like encompass, like research-wise? Uh, so it's kind of a generic term, to be honest, but um, it's kind of just the way that animals use the space around them which i know is also very generic but it it encompasses everything from uh home ranges so the places that individuals are selecting to live in um, and defend whether that's for mate selection uh you know just um den site selection for for reproduction uh resource selection for um you know just depending on, on whatever it is that that individual or those that species needs for survival. Um, and it's a complex kind of uh, accumulation of a lot of factors of um, yeah. kind of everything, like, everything that's around them, both living and non-living. So you're collecting like a whole bunch of data about like just like the animal – like where it goes and like what it does. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the I probably you know what I so what I study is the home ranges of of these voles, and that it was similar to what Amanda Veals was doing with with her foxes, um, just on a you know slightly scaled up <laughs> version. Voles uh, don't go that far, but uh, but yeah, we put radio collars on them and um, track their movements, see where they're going, see what areas they're selecting for, and. Um, you know, what sort of resources they're, they're finding themselves or what they're putting themselves in as opposed to, you know, maybe other nearby areas that they're not selecting for as well. Yeah. So, uh, my, the second job I was doing with that lab was uh, working for Amanda Veals on her project. And then, and then I graduated and, uh, ended up getting a job here in Tucson that, uh, was kind of exactly, almost exactly what I wanted. Uh, it was uh, for a company called Neon. The oh boy, it's an acronym. Um, National Ecological Observatory Network. There we go. Got it. Um, 
and so they they did a bunch of work they did pretty much everything you could think of that was some sort of biology whether it was plants animals they even did atmospheric stuff um and they're all over the u.s they're a really great company that i worked for um but they i got to get just tons and tons of hands-on experience um on their small mammal uh crew so we were going out and trapping uh in uh, the santa rita experimental range uh down here south of tucson and uh they're just i mean we were catching every day uh that we were trapping we might we were processing something around i don't know like 300 animals a day were you just trapping uh, small mammals or yeah yeah so it was all small mammals it was all rodents um and because i mean the traps that we had were just nothing bigger than a rodent could really fit into mm-hmm. them um and everything from like rats down we weren't catching rabbits or mm-hmm. or anything like that uh well incidental <laughs> young rabbits from time to time but not that wasn't what we were going for thank god you didn't have any of those very uh, entrepreneurial rabbits because they will almost skin themselves trying to get into a sherman trap sometimes yeah but, you know thank god but i got just tons of experience handling all kinds of different small mammals because one thing that was kind of unique about um where where we were trapping so like i was saying neon has sites all over the u.s and um most of those sites have something like maybe four to five different species that they deal with. Our site down here in in the Santa Rita experimental range, uh, I think we had oh what was it? it was it was twenty just shy of twenty species I think. Mm. Oh uh, wow! Yeah, <laughs> so we've got tons of different species down here. Um, so, and I mean, they're everything ranging from stuff that's like a couple inches long, you know, head, you know, tail to tail to nose um, to large pack rats that are the meanest things on this planet. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of them. It sounds scary. Yeah, they're they're rough. Um, I mean, but they're really cool, yeah. though, right? They're cool when you're not touching them. <laughs> they're super adorable. They're super soft and fluffy. They look great until yeah. you put hands on them. And they just lose their minds and they pee all over the place and they try to bite anything that comes within, you know, their biting distance. Mm-hmm. They're, I, <laughs> how, big do, how big do those guys get? Um, Cause I, I see them as like mythical creatures, like, like Pokemon or something. <laughs> so I've never seen them before in person. Um, I mean, they're, so if you've seen like uh, the, the fancy rats that are in um, like uh, pet stores and whatnot, they're about that size, yeah. maybe just slightly smaller than than what you know a domestic rat would look like. But okay. they're, they're big. They they've <laughs> they've got some heft to them. <laughs> That's scary. Uh, sturdy, sturdy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I and I got tons of experience doing you know a handling just all these different species and then also different procedures with them like taking blood. Uh, which is something I had never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the measurements that go uh, go along with small mammal captures, um, and then ear tagging and uh, pit tagging, which is essentially the same thing as um, you know, like the microchip that you get for your animals. Yeah, uh, it's it's literally the same exact thing. Um, but for wildlife. But for wildlife, yeah. So we're like inserting needles into animals and injecting these these microchips. Um, 
all for like you know capture recapture data um to yeah. track over time um yeah so that was really cool and that was that was the first job that i got right out of undergrad and actually while i was doing that job i got contacted by um my or the um the um lead pi of the lab that i had been working for when i was an undergrad uh dr kaprowski and he offered me he said he had this perfect position that you know popped up and the first person he thought of was me which is kind of an unusual way to stumble into grad school yeah i mean uh, that's awesome i think our well yeah i think our pi has like a special touch for that kind of thing <laughs> Uh, but that's that's not usually how it works. <laughs> yeah, so. uh, usually you have to put in all kinds of applications, and you know you have to try to contact people if you don't already know the yeah. the, the people that you're you know trying to get a hold of. You just have to send random emails and and go through it that way. And uh, real quick for uh, for the listeners, can you guys explain what a PI stands for and what it means? Private investigator. Uh, principal primary investigator oh. yeah so, so basically, <laughs> like, like so whenever you see pi uh it's kind of like the head of the research group or the head of that lab and you know you you would think that that doesn't necessarily need like a specific designation right. but it does when it comes to like grants and and project agreements because basically like the pi is taking responsibility for the project uh, or for the specific allocation of a grant. This is my understanding as a lowly yeah. graduate student. So I'm not a PI, oh, so don't, don't PhD be confused. Student. But, but uh, yeah, so basically they're saying, like, oh, I'm taking responsibility for this grant. You can uh, rest assured that this money will be allocated appropriately and the research will be conducted, uh, you know, productively and produce results. Um, so that's why like that designation of PI is actually like important in academia, I guess you could say. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so for people that aren't in the biotech, uh, biology field, I guess not biotech per se, um, it takes a while to be able to get to a position to be a PI. Is that the most senior, the most senior guys PI or? Uh, you, it's it's up, it's up there. It's very very up there. Okay. Yeah. So PI, yeah. So like, I mean, you have to be like pretty much a full professor to run a lab most of the time. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, so like once you can run a lab, you can be a PI, but nobody steps right in from like a PhD position to being a PI, running your own lab. Most people have to do. At least one postdoc position, if not more, at least in our field. Yeah. Um, so that that's often how that goes. Yeah. Anyway, I so let, let's not stay on this subject very long though. Let's uh let's move on. All right. So then <laughs> let's not get into like detail. You know, like you know, yeah, I don't know. So how did you get from this position? to what you're doing now or what you're about to to finish now okay and you don't have to do any like you know deep gospel 
uh, dives on anything. So yeah, so I guess so. You know, I was working for Neon, and, and Dr. Kaprowski, uh, Kaprowski approached me, and I knew um, that it wasn't an opportunity that I could just kind of be like, oh, you know, this will come around again. Because it doesn't. It, that, that doesn't happen that way for most people. I knew that Dr. Kapraski was kind of, I don't want to say taking a chance on me, but he was, you know, the fact that he said that he thought of me first really kind of drove home that, you know, he thought that I had what it took to be in graduate school. Because I, at that point, I hadn't even taken, um, like, the graduate um the GRE, I forget what it yeah. stands for, the, you know, standardized test that you take to get into graduate school and stuff like that. Cause I hadn't really considered it as an option just yet. Like I was yeah. like, Oh, you know, I'll go work for a while and then maybe I'll think about getting back into graduate school or something. Right. But you're see, you know, like you put yourself out there to do kind of like the dirty work. Like you said, you wanted to be a qualified person yeah. for whatever came and doing that kind of low level stuff. Like, on a volunteer basis is really what you have to do to like prove that you're going to be the worthwhile person to get the job done. So, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, oh, hopefully also, you see that as like coming to fruition, <laughs> you know, at, the, at this point. Well, I, I should also mention that I had, I continued to go to conferences um, the whole time as an undergrad after I went to that first mm-hmm. one, which I think that's probably what spoke the most to Dr. Kaprowski. Cause mm-hmm. I always made a point to go and like see him mm-hmm. Um not only because he would buy me a beer when we would meet at the bar, and <laughs> but also because he was a really great um, connection to have. And, and you know, I, I knew after that first conference that I went to with him or that he was there at, um, that he was really, really well-respected and well-known, well a very renowned scientist, which I didn't really know just being an undergrad he's captain squirrel dude he, he is, is captain squirrel that's what they call him I mean, in uh, south africa is people, captain squirrel people were lined up to talk to him he's like the squirrel researcher of the world uh, or at least one of wow. them that's crazy yeah and and i didn't know that when i first applied for a job in his lab i you know i just thought it was like oh this is a lab in college you know whatever cool but then i found yeah. out it's like this insanely well-known researcher and everything so you know, it all kind of, I kind of <laughs> lucked out on accident, to be honest. That's pretty awesome that, that, uh, he chose you in that fashion. Like that, that yeah. probably says yeah. a lot. So, yeah. I knew that if he had reached out to me, like that kind of meant a lot. Like he thought, because he's, he's had tons of graduate students. He still has, <laughs> he still has tons of graduate students. Um, so if he thought that, you know, I, I had what it took, then, you know, that kind of meant something which really kind of, I guess like I was always kind of on the fence about graduate school. And then, but you know, when he reached out Whoa. to me, that kind of right. affirmation that I needed, I guess. Yeah. Well, that, that, you, that's good. Good motivation. You yeah. found the right mentor for you. Right. Which we, we, we talked about as a big thing. No, put, put it, like, sorry, we got a ferret in the room right now. And they, what the heck? <laughs> they will, they are alcoholics. Not oh, they, this is a biology fact for folks, actually. Ferrets are known to be attracted to alcohol. Wow, uh, I should have warned you, actually, <laughs> <laughs> inviting you into my home. Yeah, no, they, they're very drawn to alcohol, and they'll do whatever it takes, whether that's lulling you into a false 
sense of security or mm-hmm. anything else to get to that alcohol. So I should have told you. They're Don't. One of those pages. They what have. Kind of, what kind of do though that it can make you <laughs> be led to a false. Let the ferret have a have a sip, dude. Come on. Yeah, just let him have a sit. No, <laughs> you don't want a drunk ferret. But that was our little like interruption, <laughs> biology interruption. That's a relevant <laughs> fact yeah. to the episode. But I've also talked about in the past, like finding the right mentor for you. Because we touched earlier in this episode, we said find your own pathway in, right? Because you're going to be doing it on your own terms and that kind of thing. But in the uh, previous episodes, I said like finding your community and like your advisor is the way to go. Because you got to have somebody that's supportive of you and like actually wants you there, doesn't just want a warm body to do the job, uh, Mm -hmm. which is very important. Um, So it sounds like that was at the point where you knew like this guy – wants me oh it's like a relationship right he wants me for me and respects what i bring to the table and then you know you know this sounds like something i'm interested in yeah yeah and it kind of worked out because the project that he had um was a was working with small mammals was working with rodents um and uh originally it was uh working on a, a nearby army installation called fort huachuca uh, and they were doing a um, some uh, forest thinning, you know, for for um, the risk of wildfires. They wanted to thin the forest out so there wasn't uh, as bad potential fire forest fires uh, in the future. And uh, they wanted me to, or they wanted somebody to uh, evaluate the small mammal composition uh, of of the area before and after. Um, so that was the that was the project that he approached me with, and I was like, that sounds great. So I scrambled and did the GRE. It did terrible the first time I took it, and I had to retake it. Um, so and then you know, I did better the second time, and I, then I ended up getting accepted to the graduate college at, at the University of Arizona, and um, started that project on Fort Huachuca, and then. Uh, got through about one one semester's worth. I kind of like hit the ground running. They wanted me trapping like as soon as I started, and <laughs> I barely even knew how to put together a project and you know what uh, you know how to do a um, you know the proper way to sample and trap and set up grids and stuff like that. I think I had I had had some experience in that, but not the I guess beginning stages of right. the project. I had done the actual trapping and everything right. and got that experience. Yeah. The project um, planning and logistics yeah. always is something you don't expect. Yeah. Um, and I kinda, say, I'm sorry. Would you say you had more experience than like the average like new graduate student? Um, maybe on like a technique sort of level, but not, at, you know, I was probably just – at where everyone starts as far as project planning goes, um, I had no experience essentially. Yeah. And, um, so that was kind of a, uh, shock, I guess. Cause as soon as I started, they, they had almost expected me to have a plan when I started. Right. And, uh, so I s- scrambled everything together, you know, did the research and in, into how to do everything. And, um, got it pieced together and started working out on Fort Huachuca. And after about a season's worth of trapping, you know, you know, so I guess about three months of trapping, 
Um, I, it just kind of, I realized I had bit off more than I could chew. I was doing way more grids than I could do as a, as a, just one person and too many, I was running too many traps that one person could check. And I, I got some help here and there. Um, but a, a few other things started to happen with that position. Um, and the, the project ended up kind of falling through in the end, uh, just for various logistical reasons. The, the, the funding wasn't what it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so my PI, Dr. Kaprowski, and I, uh, we decided to pull out of that project. Uh, so we wrapped it up as much as best we could with with the data that we had and gave gave the base you know what what we had um so that they had something um but we we pulled out of that project which was kind of unfortunate because it was it was a cool project i really i really liked where it was going and what it could have been it was just not something that was going to be able to happen um and luckily because dr Kaprowski uh is such a good guy you know (laughs) he didn't just you know toss me to the curb and expect me to figure it out on my own. He he had some ideas for some future projects or some other projects that he had been kind of tossing around. And uh, he scraped together funding to get me to do this other project working on the uh, spatial ecology of voles. And it was kind of an open-ended project. It was kind of whatever I wanted it to be. It was just that this, this species of vole that lives on Mount Graham <laughs> is relatively unstudied like it was it's known to exist and that's that's about it for the most part um yeah so he kind of just was like hey there's these voles up on mount graham go do something with them mm-hmm. and i was like whoa <laughs> okay it's like contextually this mountain is kind of like the the base for a lot of research out of this lab you could say like i mean they're very focused on the the mount graham red squirrel but this vole is like a special almost like a special project because it's not the in the spotlight like the mount graham red squirrel is like a high profile issue both locally with like the university and the observatory and uh, that impact on the mountain, because they so the Mount Graham red squirrel obviously is confined to Mount Graham. We're not going to do a whole history here, but yeah. it's kind of like a locally important issue because it's almost almost like a mascot of some sort of of the mountain and like the community. Well, it got a lot of attention back in the '80s because they built these telescopes up mm-hmm. on the mountain, um, and it caused like, I mean. Honestly, it was like a national outrage. People mm. were coming from all over the U.S. to come down here and protest because this red squirrel was, you know, they they wanted to build these telescopes that were going to be built on top of this mountain, and mm. these squirrels exist only there, only on top of that mountain. Mm. They have a very narrow uh, habitat range that they can exist in. Uh, they need that upper, that super high elevation, um, and people were very concerned. And they're they're an endangered yeah. species, right? Yeah, they yeah. they were listed as an endangered species, even though they're they're a subspecies. Um, it's not like all red squirrels are endangered. It's just this population of red yeah. squirrels that are endangered because of their their isolation. Yeah, which would have been a big deal. Oh, I mean, depends who you talk to. I think it's a big <laughs> deal. A lot of people think it's a big deal, but yeah, like 
let's not do the whole subspecies species thing because that's like a whole travesty in its own and yeah Yeah. the lumbers and splitters the cladists let's get them all involved we'll have to do a round table yeah i mean for what it's worth i'm also my job like the the way i get a paycheck every month is is because i i'm a research technician for this the mount graham red squirrel project so Mm -hmm. i'm kind of invested in the squirrels too but it's also important to note that, like, this advisor on this project, like, understands that some didn't go right or well out of, like, circumstances out of your hands, which, like, you can read all kinds of horror stories about graduate school online and, like, geez, man, how did those people make it, you yeah. know? And so this guy understood that, like, things were out of your hands. It did work out logistics got in the way like as often as is the case in field work more often than not i would say like my almost my whole career has been more field oriented than lab oriented and then you know the nature of field work is just you are at the mercy of the planet and the universe and sometimes like everything will go wrong for you yeah sometimes things (laughs) go right and you you can put yourself in a position for things to go right Based on all the information you have, that doesn't mean it's going to go right. Sometimes things are just out of your, your con- control. So yeah. it's good that, you know, you like he picked you and you picked him. You know, it's like a lassie yeah. story uh, <laughs> almost, you know, about how, how it, un- it works together that you guys are both understanding of circumstance, you know, which I've I never appreciate. viewed it in that context. So lassie story. Uh-huh. I like it. There you go. I mean, geez. <laughs> so then he said, I've got this project for you on this mountain. These voles, isolated population. And then what did what happened next? You were like, oh, yeah, buddy, let's get in there. Well, I mean, more or less, because, I mean, in <laughs> one idea, you know, I didn't have another option. So I was mm-hmm. where I was. And, but um, it. it it was a good option, you know. It was more small mammal work. It's more speed, or you know, another species that I I hadn't handled, but you know, I had a lot of experience with that taxa in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a pretty easy transition. It wasn't like I was going from studying mice to studying horses or something like that. Um, so it was an easy transition, and uh, you know, I quickly threw together, uh, you know, a, a um, proposal a proposal and you know got it approved and i started started trapping i put in for grants uh which you know i had never done before putting in for grants is a (laughs) is an interesting thing and when you get your first grant it's a it's a big deal i was really proud of myself when i got my first grant real you know it's a relatively small grant but you know someone still thought that my project project was good enough to give money to uh I guess both to Neil and Chris, can you guys um, elaborate a little bit about the grant proposal period and also how it feels to receive or not receive a grant? All right, I'll talk about the grant writing process and what it's like to not receive grants, and then Neil can talk about what it's like to write grants. <laughs> also, Neil, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so the grant writing process as often, well, it depends, right? If you are somehow allocating yourself enough time 
for the search process to like find probable or possible grants, you're a little you're a little bit of a special human being if you can somehow live a life, do work, and have time to go look for all possible grants, right? Mm-hmm. But the key is finding the right grants to apply for, which I have not mastered yet. But grants often will kind of uh, specify themselves to a region. So the prompt will tell you, we're looking to bolster resources towards projects, uh, either you know investigating issues in X region or you know endangered species or you know facilitating. Um, you know, cooperation between countries, like there's all kinds of different stipulations for grants. You have to look for the right one. For sure, for sure. Uh, Now, the only grant I've ever gotten, which I, you know, I'm not, I'm going to find myself in a Goldilocks zone of mediocrity here because I haven't applied for very many grants and I hope to change that. However, uh, I also haven't also been rejected for very many grants because also I haven't been applying for many grants. But anyway, <laughs> the only grant I got was a departmental grant, which not everybody got. Um, so that was like kind of good, but it was basically like what projects in the in the department do we feel like funding? Now that's obviously a very much more small scale grant, and then they go all the way up to you know, multinational collaborations on projects, you know, like that mm. geo or some other big big brand, you know, can Disney, fund like to, yeah. Well, yeah, they can fund, you know, million dollar grants or multi million dollar grants all the way, you know, hundred thousand, fifty thousand, whatever increment. Uh, so you just got to find the right one for you and the right one that's gonna be interested in the work that you're doing. Again, take yeah. this to somebody who's only gotten one, but only <laughs> applied for. So two. If, if you get a grant, <laughs> I've, you did a good. It's still good though. Okay, if you get a grant, is it like, is it generally just like for for you, like? It's it's for the research that you're pursuing. But is it it's like a grant, a grant to like a group of people, or is it a grant for just like your own like your own research on your? I'm maybe well, I'm wording this wrong, but you're on your masters or whatever. No, I or, get or, you. It, there's often like stipulations, right? Like so, yeah. some of them would be like equipment and supplies only. Some of them will be like. Uh-huh a stipend to the person and equipment and supplies or whatever moving on from there. And, you know, like, again, like I'm not, I I don't have a lot of experience with that kind of thing, but uh, it it really depends. Like they're all very individual because sometimes they're set up by corporations. Sometimes they're set up by like NGOs and sometimes they're like private party grants. Like I want to fund this kind of project. Let's see who will apply to do this kind of project, and then I have my own stipulations within that. So it's kind of like a tiered process, but also like within those tiers, there's individual stipulations to each grant. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm. I that's that's what I've seen in my experience. Neil, as somebody who's got, who's who's gotten a grant to like fund a project, I don't know what you might you you yeah. might have a whole different perspective. I mean, what's your opinion, Neil? (laughs) No, I mean, I think Chris kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, I mean, I've been, uh, of all the grants I've applied to, I've been accepted to all of them. 
But uh, oh. that's a good one. All right. I, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, hey, guys, I'm 50%. He's 100%. You see what that is? That's right. See, that's, I, was a, I was a, hold on. I was a 100% sniper in high school lacrosse. One shot for one goal. <laughs> so I retired at that level. Now, Neil, continue on with the grants. Well, I mean, it's, it's, at this point, I only needed the one grant, uh, so I won't have to put in for any more grants and and um, potentially uh, fail. And I'm glad I'm glad to you know retire on top. Mm-hmm. With it that, feels uh, good. Percent success rate. Had a good career. Um, but no, it's it's a really great feeling uh, when, especially so for for my personal example, that this grant was a it was a kind of a private organization. It was a husband and wife team that uh, they they decided that they wanted to start funding um, wildlife research in the the southwestern United States, and um, you know they they weren't scientists themselves. They were just very wealthy, you know, like. Uh, giving individuals that that wanted to to further research and uh which you know i think like chris was saying it's key to find the the grants that are going to you know that you know you're setting yourself up for success when when you're applying to the right grants for the right area with people that are you know similarly minded i guess uh so, but it's a, still a great feeling when, you know, you put this proposal together, you know, you kind of, you tell them about what your project is and the goals and what you hope to achieve. And then, you know, what the p- possible limitations are. And then they, they review everybody that, that applies to them and, and they pick you. And it's, it's just a really great feeling to, you know, it was kind of like what the first time in graduate school that I felt like a scientist, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, I would say that in this – okay, so if you're doing research, you almost always have to do the, the, the grant writing process. And if it doesn't sting when you fail and feel like you're a million dollars when you win, <laughs> probably not working on the right thing, right? Like because you should be emotionally invested and like very like all in on the stuff you're doing. Um, and so I think that's important, right? Like, he, you know, like uh, when I fail – I feel terrible. I feel terrible often. And I it's kind of like the highs and lows of this discipline. You know, people think like I kind of because I played sports my whole life, I kind of equate it to sports like winning and losing. Like you really got to care. Otherwise, what are you doing? So in science, I feel like it's kind of the same thing with but with a lot of facets, you know, grant writing is one of them. Publishing is another and and, and uh, just like accomplishing your research objectives. But I think if, if you apply for a bunch of grants, and you don't get any and your project is unfunded, probably not working on the right project for you if it doesn't hurt. Um, yeah. And, and if it doesn't feel great, you're probably not working on the great project for you either. I so think- it's good to hear that you said, you know, he felt – for the first time, you felt like a real scientist. Yeah, that was the kind of, I guess, affirming moment that I felt like a scientist. But I think, like you were saying, you know, if if you're, you know, it's one thing to put in for a bunch of grants and not get them. And, you know, that hurts. That sucks, you know, because that happens to a lot of people. They don't get the grants that they put in for. And it doesn't mean that doesn't you know, mean your science is bad or, yeah. or anything. It's just that, yeah. that you didn't get selected. But, like, if if you're not 
emotionally invested if you're not putting your heart into your your grant writing even if it sucks writing grants because it does um, yeah grant writing is a uh, art of, of its own <laughs> yeah from from what i've heard i'm, I'm not there at all by no means, but <laughs> i hate writing yep yeah so i mean if if you're not upset about it when if, if it doesn't work out for you then you know what are you doing mm-hmm. it's a good point yeah, I feel like that's what a lot of people – I mean, like, when you're successful enough, like, a lot of people kind of build up, like, a residual pool they can pull from and that kind of stuff. But yeah. especially, like, we're more focused for, like, the young scientists, quote-unquote, like, people trying to work their way in and graduate students, undergrad, just – or just people to understand what you have to get through to get to be a scientist on whatever level they think. It's it's a tough – it's a tough road. And you face a lot of adversity. And a lot of that adversity turns out to be kind of like personal, right? Because if I'm going to sit down and put, you know, I don't know, 20 hours into writing something and then it comes back as in, hey, buddy, you know what? Magic 8-Ball said, try again next year. That that kind of hurts because I believe in the work that I do. And I think most scientists in this kind of bracket also think their work is important at some level and – you know, they put a lot of effort into it and to be told that your effort's like not good enough. I mean, geez, but yes, persistence is, I think, the key on that one. Yeah. Uh, also with mm. with publishing, I mean, I, I somebody I respect a lot, which we're not talking about publishing a lot, but somebody somebody I respect a lot told me, you know, it took them eight submissions to to get a paper accepted. And then that paper has been cited, you know, multiple times since it was accepted. So, you know, you can't give up on work just because other people at that time don't don't view it as as perfect. Um, so that's that's really important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cause like only like in a lot of cases, like only one person's like reviewing like either your grants <laughs> or like your paper. And if that one person doesn't like it or just doesn't have a space for it, then you're kind of screwed, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. You have this project picked out. You figured out that this is the guy that I want to work with, and he wants to work with me. Uh, you know, after some mishaps, which happens in field studies from time to time. I mean, like talk to anybody who's worked in the field. Uh, so now you're up on the mountain. What are you doing? So uh, the the last time that this species was really kind of studied, well, so there were two studies, I guess technically there. One in the 50s, uh, and then one again in the early 80s, and those were pretty much just uh, to kind of get an idea of how many voles were up on the mountain. They weren't really like evaluating anything about them, just how many there were. And 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 the the one in the 80s was because they were considering it for a candidacy for for an endangered species, kind of like the the Mount Graham red squirrel that's up there. Okay, so so don't want to like interject too much, but could you say the name of this animal? Oh, <laughs> so the common name of this species is the Mount Graham white-bellied long-tailed vole. Mount Graham <laughs> white-bellied. That's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. I won't refer to it like that every time because it's it takes way too much time. So, but but for the route like contextual relevance, right? This the overarching species is distributed all the way up into Alaska 
and then down into Arizona, right? Yeah, yeah. So the 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 core species is the long-tailed vole. And uh, like you said, it, it's it, it it ranges all the way from Alaska down to uh, the southern extent of the range, which is where my study population is in Arizona. And it's an isolated population. Right? Yeah, yeah. So this the southernmost population is isolated up on top of this this mountain um, wow. in an area called the Madrean Sky Island Complex. Um, the idea behind the Sky Island kind of uh, idea is that you know. It's these islands of, of uh, high elevation that are uh, separated by seas of desert. So they, in a way, they kind of function in the same way that an island in the sea would, would operate. And there's lots of endemic species on islands, just like you find a lot of endemic species or species that you only find in that location um, in these mountains as well. Because Eudemic, the, meaning, eudemic meaning what? It's endemic. endemic? Is, yeah. Uh, and, and it's uh, that the, the they're isolated in a, in a geographic location and they cannot disperse away from that area. So like the, the area, just like it is in an ocean, um, the, the desert floor is inhospitable to these voles. Um, they just wouldn't survive. It's too hot sort of thing. That's Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah. the mountains so basically function as islands. If you're interested in this concept, look up island biogeography. That is the first place to start at. But the sky, the idea about sky islands is they function pretty much the same way as island biogeography. So yeah. Anyway, and it's and it's been said that you know the top of so the top of this mountain is is about ten thousand feet, and the uh, the forest or sorry the desert floor at the base of it is at, um, I believe, somewhere around 2,500 feet, something mm-hmm. around in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've heard it been equated to going to the top of Mount Graham is almost the same as driving from Arizona, the desert of Arizona, to Canada. The same species you'll find in Canada you'll find at the tops of these mountains wow. in Arizona. What's the, the like average temperature up there, like the, the weather like? Uh, it's great. It's cold, uh, which is really great when you're up there in the summertime, uh, which is when I was up there for my field work. Cause down in Tucson where, you know, where I'm from and where I go to school, it's, you know, probably like a hundred to 110. And then up on the mountain where I was is the seventies. So That's it's, awesome. it's great <laughs> being up there in the summertime. It's much nicer than being down in Tucson for sure. <laughs> But then also, you know, all winter long, it's under five feet of snow, which is not something that I'm used to at all. So when I'm up there in the wintertime, I'm walking around in snowshoes, which I've never done in my life. I miss snow. I miss (laughs) the concept of snow. The concept. The concept of snow. That was a every year thing at least once. I went home for Christmas. It snowed before I got there. Melted. I had little patches to kind of rub it in my face. And then <laughs> as soon as they left, snowed again. And now you're up there in the winter wonderland. Hey, you're welcome mountains. to come with me and help me out with field work. I'm want. sorry. I might be in Africa. <laughs> I think it's supposed to snow tomorrow here in St. Louis, too. <laughs> so jealous. Honestly. It's, up. it's supposed to be like super a, cold like tomorrow. Blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> super Bowl? Yeah, it's super been, cold. <laughs> super Bowl. <laughs> that was, that was crazy. It must have looked super weird you leaving your house wearing like snow, like a snow uniform in the middle of Arizona. 
<laughs> Maybe I just wanted to hype the Chiefs for beating those coastal elitists. Yeah, well, you know, you know, we got the, we got those. We got let's the just say, let's, just, let's just say Midwest on top. Midwest. On right. bottom. Midwest on top. The other mountain. You got the species. You're like, man, this is a island population, basically. I'm the only guy up here since 1950. 1980. 1850-1980s. We're in the business now, all right? I got my hands on it. Let's get to business. Yeah. Yeah. So so they hadn't been studied. So pretty much anything that I do is kind of, I guess, novel in a way, um, which is pretty cool. Um, But again, I have like no direction of what to do, which is fine. I kind of I could do whatever I want, which was great. Um, So my thinking to start off with was, well, I need to find these voles. I need to know where they are and how to trap them and, and, you know, where to trap them. And that proved to be one of the more difficult things that I think I had to accomplish for my whole project was uh so i looked back in those records of of those old studies of where they had trapped and and they didn't give great direction because you know there's no gps back in the 50s or the 80s um so they just have generic sort of areas described or like certain meadows are are named and whatnot so they said Mm -hmm. oh there's voles at hannigan's meadow or not uh hospital flat meadow and stuff like that so i'm like okay well I'll, i'll start there so i started trapping there in all these historic locations from these previous studies, and I didn't catch anything. Well, <laughs> I didn't, I caught things, they just weren't voles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me pretty much all summer to find my first vole. I think I once I caught my first vole, I, I had three weeks left of the summer, you know, after trapping for two months. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a little discouraging to start and not be able to find the species that you're trying to study. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. It's hardening. <laughs> I, mean, I would think at least. That. Yeah. Well, um, well, people people always think like trapping mice in your house is the same as out in the field, and most like, you know, <laughs> maybe you put some cheese in the trap, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in your house, and like that's a whole different introduced species, right? Like. The, the the ones out there in the wild have to deal with predators, competition with their own species, like fighting to the yeah. death, trying to find mates, uh, you know, trying to find food, trying to find space, all that kind of stuff. So, like, animals that actually have to deal with all of those different factors often are more, like, trap shy uh, than your average house mouse, I would say. It's like, as somebody who's done, like, small rodent trapping, like... You know, I also, like, I was in the place for a fixed timeline of six months. For, like, the first month, couldn't trap a thing. Like, (laughs) and, you know, it was during, like, a very severe drought. But also, at the same time, I'm offering, like, very good food for the animals that are out there. And it's just, like, a shyness thing. You know, you're putting a bunch of new objects in in their territories that they know, like, very well. Yeah. They're probably not going to be like, oh, man, like the aliens have come down. Let's just hop in there, you know, <laughs> container. No, that's not that's not going to happen. So you can kind of view it on that scale, which is why I like kind of think like 
the timeline and like small mammal trapping stuff is often too short in my perspective. Uh, but anyway. But yeah, so um, so it took me a long time to find the first bowl, and then uh, I realized, or well, I guess the the location where I caught that bowl was along a stream, and none of my other trapping areas were were along streams or any sort of waterway at all. Um, and so I decided to try to focus on those sorts of areas. And that was when, uh, I guess, you know, I kind of hit the jackpot because once I started trapping along streams rather than just out in meadows and, you know, in the middle of forests, I started catching them like crazy. So once I found out where they were, it was super easy. Um, but it took a long time to get to that point, longer than I wanted it to. Um, <laughs> but it, it kind of worked out because, you know, I, I the the idea of the study was to put radio collars on these on these individuals and then track them and see where they go. And because of the timing of when I got my grant, which is the money that I used to buy those collars, um, I didn't have that, those collars for that first summer anyway. So in a way, I guess it kind of worked out, even though it took a lot longer than, you know, than I wanted it to. Yeah. I want to put this in perspective for people. He put collars on like hamster sized animals. Gerbil. <laughs> Gerbil. I mean, mm-hmm. Syrian hamster is pretty big. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just saying like, Listen, I've been around animals with collars. They're elephants, all right. Like you, you understand. You understand that concept. You have a helicopter flying. It's like, whoop, gotta dart the elephant, chase it into the shade. Everybody comes in, flips the elephant over, puts the collar on. Like it's a, it's to carry the payload of the battery, mm. like, like, like the transmitter and everything. That's got to be a big animal. They found a way to put. A similar VHF, so like uh, telemetry, kind of the beep, 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 when you watch documentary, those kind of collars, on sure. something the size of a hamster or a gerbil. Yeah. Uh, or a gerbil. Uh, and like that to me was crazy. Uh, we talked to Brett last week about those kind of similar concept on, on he's developing on birds, mm. which is a whole different challenge. But I mean, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller is kind of the way this technology is going. Which I mean, that's the limiting factor yeah. on on getting them on animals. But that is something that's pretty crazy. But anyway, that's awesome. It's a good time to be. It's a good time to be getting into smaller animals, especially because you can fit those yeah. collars on. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, a new um, sort of area that only recently has been available um, within the last 10, 20 years, depending on the size of whatever animal that you're working with. Um, but yeah, so these these collars, I mean, for what it's worth, they were less than three grams, which I don't have a good. It's like three paper clips. Less that's pretty, that's pretty light. <laughs> yeah, they were crazy, crazy small and crazy light. And um, I imagine uh, you, know, you have to do a lot of research. Sorry, what? So I imagine these rodents with like very like strong necks walking around. Like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, about that because they are. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really have like a uh, a well-defined head and then into their neck sort of area. They're kind of a like a traffic cone. They're like early 2000s <laughs> NFL players. <laughs> yeah. 
So that was probably one another one of the biggest challenges was once I was able to find them and call and capture them um, was to put collars on them and I, you know you had to find that kind of that sweet spot between being tight enough to stay on to where they can't slip it off the top of their head and mm-hmm. then also not choking them out and you know having them suffocate which happen a lot you know i put a collar on and they'd start choking and you could see right away when they can't breathe and i'd scramble with you know my wire snips to to get the collar off as fast as i could to try to make sure that they recovered because that was a thing with these voles was they you know i've worked with a lot of different species a lot of different small mammal species and these voles were probably the um so good way to put it like they were the most susceptible to stress mm-hmm. they did not like even the slightest inconvenience when in comparison those those pack rats that i was talking about <laughs> earlier you know we were taking blood for them we were literally stabbing them in their necks and drawing blood from them and they didn't care it didn't <laughs> matter if i were to try to do that to a vole it would probably just give up you get yeah. a heart attack or something which yeah. is a it's a big it's a big deal getting to know the species you're working with like because it varies. I mean, I I uh, trapped Namakwa rock mice in South Africa, and you know the ones in the wild not so bad, but as I was also using the ones in my house for research and trapping because but because they originally came from outside is during a drought so most of the animals move well most of the rodents tried to find the easiest conditions possible and some of them died so that allowed like a lot of movement into human habitation yeah. anyway man those things would have heart attacks in the traps capture myopathy and it was terrible i felt terrible i still only had four fatalities i just want to put that out there and, and <laughs> only only animals. three of them were my fault one <laughs> of them wasn't but anyway i just want to put that out there but yeah getting a feel for what your study subject can handle is like a real it's a real thing because it changes and some of them are more fragile or more you know docile or more aggressive or more resilient than others and like neil said like he is working with a species that you have to have a delicate touch with because otherwise i mean geez you know you're trying to you're trying to do something like in your perspective that's not an invasive method i mean you catch them you put a collar on you watch them and then you let them go and you know they might just be of of the you know kind of preposite or predisposition to find that like horrible you know and and there's nothing you can do about that but you just gotta like do your own due diligence what were you trying to say randall oh um i'm not exactly sure what i was gonna say but you gotta work with like your own species and like you don't want to give them like ptsd or or like they would like alter their behavior or anything like like that i did it's a whole side of the whole thing i didn't even realize existed until till now it's very interesting yeah, a lot of species can get super stressed out and then just like even just in traps and mm-hmm. and dive, you know, if they're not in the right conditions or if it's just slightly warmer than what they want. <laughs> yeah, what they want. Um, which you know, I had to trap. I could only trap during the early morning. Well, not the early, like the early to mid mornings and then the the afternoons because even you know it's not that hot up on Mount Graham. It's only like in the 70s uh, in the summertime, but 
even that heat was too much for most of the bowls. So I had to, I couldn't have the traps open during the middle of the day. Right. I think people need a, like, this is an aside. This is from someone who's trapped small mammals on behalf of someone who's trapped small mammals. Like you got to get out there early. You got to set your traps kind of late. Cause like if, if animals are sit like a a Sherman trap is basically like a aluminum box. Right. So anything that gets stuck in there during the heat of the day is it's going to cook. Yeah. It's going to (laughs) cook. And like, most like I think all small mammal biologists, rodent biologists, should really get out there as soon as they can and set them as late as they can. And I think most of us kind of almost kind of in a, like a self sadistic way take pride in, in finding a way to do that. Like you know, because mm. we uh, that goes ties into like really caring about what you're working on. But yeah, we were opening up traps before the sun came up um every day that we were setting traps and then you know heading out and checking them a few hours later so that's that's one thing i think a lot of people don't think about with small mammal trapping they think you know oh they're small it's it's pretty easy but you gotta get up early you know mm-hmm. it's not it's not a good time day in and day out waking up super early going to bed late because you're checking traps you know into the into the evening and sometimes depending on how many animals you have it goes into the nighttime you know it's yeah. it's one, it's a factor that a lot of people don't take into account when they're thinking about small mm-hmm. mammals or rodents at least. Especially, I mean, he's got bears up there, oh. mountain lions. I mean, not that they got to <laughs> worry about those, but they're there, you know. And so you are, have, there, are there really bears up there? Oh yeah, we got bears and mountain lions. We had we had what I assume was probably a bear come through and smash a bunch of my traps one night. <laughs> that was cool of him or her. <laughs> uh, uh, that's not scary. Do you guys bring like protection, like like bear mace? Or no, I mean, we have it available to us, but I I was never really all that worried about it. I only ran into one bear, and it wasn't. Oh. I mean, black bears. They're not like you know, you know, yeah, nothing to worry about bears or anything. So, I mean, <laughs> they're not super aggressive, and usually they see you, and they'll just run away. It's not it's not a big deal. Okay. I never ran into a mountain lion. I'm glad I never did. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably about the same thing I, I say about leopards. Like, I've only seen one leopard, but guarantee more than one has seen me. Oh, yeah. So, like, the same thing with mountain lions is probably true. You've you know? probably seen me walking around, <laughs> bending over, picking up traps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that just goes to show you, like, unless you put yourself in certain situations, or the mountain lion is, like, under certain situations like old or yeah. diseased, starving, whatever, probably not going to have too many problems with those kind of things. Yeah. No, it's really not as big of an issue as people tend to make it out to be. I mean, I've seen those signs. <laughs> I took a picture of one of those. It's absurd. <laughs> the signs out here are kind of ridiculous. It's yeah. like a ferocious mountain lion. Caution! Mountain lion area! And then the picture is like a, it's like a ferocious mountain lion, like, you know, growling and everything. Yeah, but it's for the, it's for the, the, oh my God, I can't talk. It's for the, the tourists. So yeah, they don't like going really deep into the woods. Really home for yeah. people who don't get it. But at the same time, like that, the people who don't get it, they see those, those poster or those signs and go, oh, wow, I better really be careful. These mountain lions, maybe I shouldn't go down this trail. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's a plus and a minus yeah. to it, I suppose. All yeah. right. So you're trapping these voles on the mountain, and you had a very difficult time finding them, but you found them. 
in a specific area, which was the riparian areas or the you know streams and creeks of the mountain. So once once we were able to start capturing them pretty regularly, we started putting in 2019. Um, we started collaring them, um, and we would put you know the collars on them, which was a struggle in and of itself because they're very small and susceptible to you know all the things that we talked about. But uh, then we would start tracking them with you know our our VHF telemetry receivers. And we would start out with the, this, the sort of normal um, antenna that you would use to track these. It's called a Yagi antenna. It's just a big, it looks like a big, uh, like those old tele- or, uh, TV antennas, um, you know, big a fish metal wire. Yeah. Like a, yeah. Looks like fish bones, basically, but metal. Yeah. Like yeah. Bunny ears? Well, like before bunny ears. Ooh. Yeah. Like the ones you see on top of houses and stuff. Oh, gotcha. Um, so you start out with that, but then when when we would get close, we want to make sure that we get like a uh, a very accurate location of where this this individual was. So with the the um, antenna that we developed was actually a extendable fishing <laughs> pole that I bought off Amazon um, that I then zip tied a uh, the cable to the to this whole uh, telemetry system. I zip tied the, the cable to it. And that would give me a very small signal. So I could know, you know, pretty much if I picked up the vole with that antenna, that the vole was probably within three feet of me or wherever the end of that antenna was or the end of that cable was. Um, So then, you know, we would take a, we would mark that location and do some vegetation measurements on it. And then take a GPS point, and um, you know we would do the the idea of having that that fishing pole was so that we didn't disturb the vole, so that it could stay there, and we weren't you know spooking that vole and and displacing it, you know making it move from where it was, and in with that you know we weren't influencing where that vole was located based on where we were kind of pushing them around. Um, so yeah, we would take that that GPS point, and then. Um, you know, I did that all summer long with, we call it 31 voles. Uh, when we were trying to get to 25 of those locations for every vole, um, to create these, the, uh, home ranges for, for these individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had about, uh, I only had 16 of those 31, uh, get to enough points to be able to use for my, <laughs> for my analyses. And that's because the the predators up on Mount Graham, <laughs> well, there's a very healthy uh, assemblage of predators up on Mount Graham. We've got everything from uh, bobcats. We've got four species of skunks. Uh, we've got coatis and quadamundi, um, long-tailed weasels, raccoons, and then a whole host of uh birds. avian predators as well birds you know we've got like i think four or five species of owl uh a few hawks there's golden eagles which golden eagles might not be preying on them that much but they're still up there um there's probably in total there's probably nine birds that prey on these voles as well so we had really bad <laughs> turnover uh, 
of voles that were collared to voles that were, you know, able to use because they got enough points. Because a lot of them got got picked off. We had a lot of confirmed predation events. <laughs> um, just finding finding empty collar. <laughs> yeah, just a collar with like some blood on it or some fur stuck oh. to it. it yeah. So I like. I'm not laughing about the animals dying because, like, I'm the bleeding heart for animals, you know? But, like, at the same time, as somebody who's done research projects, who's, like, caught very identifiable animals and then they just disappear, it's, it's stressful. So I'm more laughing about the uncomfortable nature of being the person who's like, did I catch this animal? I did. Did I stress it out? I did. Did it die? Yes. I'm more laughing about the uncomfortable nature. Not, I'm yeah. not blaming it on him, but I'm just saying as somebody who's done yeah. something similar, I felt uncomfortable. Although I had very one very tough woman rat who we'll talk about at a different time who very much surprised <laughs> me. But yes, back back to Neil. Well, yeah, we, I mean, there were times where we'd be tracking a whole, you know, we've got maybe seven, six points on them everything's good, everything's going well, and then one hour later, you know, go to try to find that vole again, and their their signal's gone, just disappeared. And it's, you know, it's hard to say what exactly happened, but it's kind of likely that, you know, that vole got eaten by something, and something carried it off and took my collar with it sort of thing. I mean, there are a lot of predators. There's like a lot. The Arizona, especially on these mountain ranges, you know, we, we don't really think of that much diversity unless outsiders, not Arizonans, you know. We, <laughs> the like, Arizonans don't know either. It's like we got those kawadis down there, kind of close to a raccoon. We got those javelinas. They're kind of like pigs. We got mountain lions, bobcats, and bears. And that's it. But in reality, no, there's like a whole smorgasbord of things that can come in and eat small mammals. Like yeah. the small the small mammals are the smorgasbord. Exactly. <laughs> I make a joke. So I just gave my first presentation about my project just uh, last weekend, and uh, one of my jokes is that they're the meatball of the mountain because literally everything eats them, and that's kind. Of, it's almost like that's what they're there for. Like every every single animal that you guys named, like besides the the bull itself, every animal probably could eat that. <laughs> oh yeah, that absolutely. Sounds like- the only predators on the mountain that aren't eating bulls are probably mountain lions and bears because they're just too big. They won't bother with it. Every other predator absolutely would go for these bulls. What what percent of the bulls would you uh would you guess like, disappeared that you think I got eaten? Uh, so I've actually <laughs> figured out exactly what percentage this is. Uh, it is, I think it was well it was 56.04% of my voles disappeared and you know a certain percentage of that was confirmed you know eaten and predated and then some of the other the other person you know part of that percentage is just disappeared who knows what happened wow so like yeah. can, can you re- reverse that that percentage and be like every female vole has like 4.8 <laughs> children eight children or something like that uh well so on average, these voles live only about, uh, what is it? It's 0.4, I think, uh, 0.4 to one year. So, you know, about four, three or four months 
to a year is their lifespan. So they really only get one chance to have <laughs> offspring if they even make it that far. Oh, wow. It's just that there's a lot of them where they are. <laughs> a lot of turnover. Yeah. Yeah, because that first year I, I call it, or sorry, I, I put a bunch of uh, ear tags on a bunch of voles that I caught towards the end of the summer, and I didn't recapture a single vole that next year when I was trapping again. So there's just not a lot of uh, year-to-year uh, persistence. Persistence, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So either they got outcompeted in the territory they wanted, which is kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say that's the more likely scenario. Yeah, I'd say the more unlikely. the more likely <laughs> scenarios that they were predated and those those territories were vacate vacated and, and then open to other individuals. So. Yeah, that's the life of a rodent. Yeah, I think they deserve a lot more respect than they get in day-to-day life and the nature. Um, just yeah. saying. But anyway, okay. So here you are. You're on your mountain. You had an unsuccessful trapping season. You've come up with a new plan. You figured out that they are concentrated on the riparian areas, the the creek areas, which kind of disagrees with the historical literature which is important, uh, like, you know, to, to be able to make that distinction. Um, and, you know, oftentimes we're fed information from the past, which may or may not be true. Hashtag things change all the time. <laughs> and then here we are now. You set up your new experimental design. You're catching voles. You're putting collars on them. And you are trying to evaluate home range and territory of males and females and then also we've got a lot of predation pressure as well yeah so So, i i mean so i was able to actually get 16 of these individuals to enough points where i could make home ranges and um start to start to work with that data and i was also looking at the amount of overlap that these home ranges have with each other to get an idea of the uh, social dynamics of this species, because that's also something that's not well known. Um, so that's kind of what I've been working on for this last, you know, semester and into, you know, where I am now. I've been analyzing a lot of the data um, that, you know, I I collected over the summer, and <clears throat> uh, I just now started to to get to a point where I can start saying things with it. So I have those home ranges. I, I've looked at it, you know, from a male standpoint and a female standpoint. And from what it looks like, there's not much of a difference as far as um, the size of those home ranges. Um, but there is a difference in the way that they overlap. So the females, um, about 70% of them were sharing their space with at least one other individual. And that could have been either male or female. It didn't really matter. It was just, there was on average uh, one other individual um, in their home range. But then with the males, there was no overlap with another male. So the males are completely, you know, territorial. They're not sharing any space with another male. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is super cool. And then on top of that, they are sharing about 
Well, on, on average, more than half of their range, their home range that they have is shared with at least one other female. So it shows, you know, the this this sort of um, like home range partitioning that they're doing is really uh, indicative of uh, territorial species, especially ones where males will have a home range that encompasses uh, several female home ranges that they're, that they're defending uh, and, then, and that they're defending from other males. Meanwhile, the females are kind of indifferent towards whoever <laughs> is in their territory, just that there's not too many people in their territory <laughs> sort of thing. Well, that's crazy. So, like, the, the, the male bull will, uh, will have, like, multiple different, like, home ranges that he'll, like, patrol, like, call his own. Yeah, well, it, so he has his his you know his home range will overlap with other female territories. Um, usually it was it was one. Uh, sometimes it was more than one. Um, but those were just from the the individuals that I, I had collared. So there were definitely other females and other males in those areas that were uncollared. Um, so it's it's you know, likely that they're, they're overlapping with more than one female. Um, yeah. 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 That makes sense. That's crazy. It is. I think it's really important to kind of con- like consider those dynamics and how they apply. Like, you know, you can watch Nat Geo and it'll be like antelope, like this male buck is the alpha and he's <laughs> fighting the beta males. And that'll be like for four hours. This, this thing is going on and like you can get that kind of perspective but you also have to understand that like uh an analog of these dynamics kind of happens at the almost the smallest mammal layer right the smallest mammal size where we have these um these rodents and in like they you know the males are territorial the females not so much the females are like, yeah, as long as I have enough resources, I'm happy to potentially share space with other people. The males are like, I have to reproduce. Another male in my space is bad news for me. And, like, I think we can all relate to that. But uh, <laughs> that's just how, like, rodent dynamics happen in this in this sphere. And it's really interesting to look at, um, especially, like, the differences and overlap between who females let in their space and who males let in their space. I think that that's a, that's an important thing. And then again, like this is a species that's only been looked at twice and then barely in the space where they looked at and then previously was found in places where it's not necessarily found anymore. And and now we're looking at a, a, a very localized population and dynamic, which is like, I mean, that's super interesting. Because it's like, this is exactly how this population is working at this moment in time at this place. Which oftentimes you don't have that kind of resolution on the data. Yeah. And, I mean, part of the reason uh, why, I mean, this is kind of so important is that, uh, you know, in the, the face of, climate change you know things things are changing and there's a lot of species that are losing or their their home range or their sorry their their species ranges are changing with with new climates with it warming um so 
one, a lot of the climate theories is that species that exist in high elevations that are, you know, are restricted to high elevations, the only way they can cope with it is to go higher. And, you know, if they're not able to go higher, then there's the risk of uh, extinction of that local, of that population. So finding or just, you know, kind of learning of, of where we are, kind of getting a baseline of what we're at at this point in time is super important to just to to understand you know potential changes that might be happening in the future or might happen in the future um, so that they can be compared to by future researchers absolutely and yeah. and like what were you gonna say randall oh i was just uh say yeah you need like a, a baseline to go off of i guess and just like yeah you just like pay pay attention to to everything that's going on yeah, and that's the thing with this species is they never really had a baseline. No one really ever did any sort of this research. So uh, with this subspecies specifically, you know, it, not much is known. And even the species as a whole is not very well studied, even though it, you know, ranges all the way up from here to Alaska. It's just not much known about this little species. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a super important species, as, as like we've talked about with you know, with um, being part of the food web, you know, lots of animals eat it. If this animal disappeared, it puts a lot of other animals in a lot, you know, harder positions sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, you know, there there are some food webs that have a lot of redundancy. But if a widespread species like this goes away, like, entirely, it's kind of like uh, you're kicking out a, a potentially, in my perspective – more important level of redundancy right like because widespread distributions of of predators of those species have come to rely on it and you know they have a quick turnover in this one population that we're talking about i mean they're seen as kind of like you said the meatball of the mountain right so if the meatball (laughs) goes away uh the the species that have come to depend on it get put on harder times and they either have to disperse find another prey source, compete for prey. It's like kind of throwing things. Equilibrium is not the correct term, but out of balance at the time, right? There's no such thing as ecological balance or natural balance or whatever, but you can have a balance at the time, right? So so mm-hmm. if one species is fulfilling a role, and if that role is just a food source, <laughs> and that goes away, that, that that's very important. And we found, like through Neil said, in, in this one population, they have a quick turnover. Uh, oftentimes, there are predation events or suspected predation events. There, <laughs> I don't know. There are no full crime scene investigators, unfortunately. <laughs> BSI. Redwall is fictional. <laughs> but BSI. <laughs> full scene investigated, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. But... I'll have everybody know at the time of this episode, Neil is closing in on the end of his master's. He did his first presentation, as he mentioned earlier, at the joint annual meeting of the Wildlife Society and American Fisheries Society this previous weekend. So we're like straight off the beat. That's why he's super sharp. And then (laughs) the numbers of all all these questions. (laughs) And then he's got to do his defense. And then he's done with his master's. 
you know, I think, honestly, to be able to do all the stuff that he did on the conditions he did, he did a great job. But in the future, what does it feel like right now, nearing the end of your master's degree? What are you, what are you looking at? What do you want to do? And with the experiences that you've had, like, in perspective. So I think... You know, uh, you know, so, some people, a lot of people, well, so my family has been asking me, they're like, oh, you, you're doing your <laughs> master's, so you must be going on to do your PhD. And that that I don't think is in the books for me. I don't think that's that's exactly what I want to do. I mean, like I said, I'm a little bit older than, than the average uh, master's student at this point. And uh, I think I'm going to try to get out into the workforce. Uh, so, I mean, I have a a daughter to support and uh i i wanna i wanna be able to you know start a family i guess it, you know own a yeah. home do do that whole you know do the whole thing um so i think and, you know and honestly even if that wasn't a factor even if you know if i was younger and i didn't have a family to support i don't think i would be going down the uh the phd road at least not in this point in my life um mm-hmm. it's it's not something that I uh, I think I want to do. It's, I'm not saying it's off the table, but it's it's putting on the back burner, I guess. It's an idea, but I don't think it's something I'm going to pursue. So, I mean, in an ideal world, I would uh, try to get a job with one of the federal agencies um, here around Tucson. There's there's actually a surprising amount of opportunities here in Tucson. Uh, be it federal or state, uh, there's even a lot of private uh, organizations for for uh, consulting work. Um, so there's a lot of options out there, and um, I'm just kind of now starting to look into them. So mm-hmm. I don't really know what the prospects are at this moment. Well, actually, that's not true. At this very <laughs> moment, there are no prospects. Um, <laughs> you do know. Yeah, they they'll come with time. Yeah, I, I suppose. They'll probably find you. <laughs> <laughs> so you, they'll probably find you. Oh yeah, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, but but you're happy that you went through the process of getting your master's and getting oh, involved yeah. with research, right? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I I definitely I wouldn't have done it differently. Mm-hmm. I I definitely would have wanted to go into research, even you know, at the end of all this, like horribly stressful, you know, you know, crunching data and running statistical tests and not getting the results that I necessarily was expecting to see and, you know, hours writing and stuff like that, which I feel like I'm making it sound really bad right now. It's no, like, that's reality, though. Yeah. And yeah. It, even with that, uh, I guess, knowledge at this point, I still would, would absolutely do it again because I think... Mm. For what I want to do, for what I think is going to make me happy, I think going down the the road that I've chosen will get me there. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a big thing that we harp on this show, I guess, is kind of like, you know, every, doing everything your way, right? You've got to find your own path into research that fits your needs. You've got to find the right advisor that supports you and you appreciate them. Like if it's somebody who supports you and you don't respect them, that's a bad move. But you got to find somebody which is mutual. You got to find a project that you can emotionally invest yourself in, 
but also pays you back in the end where you think I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot. I understand now through experience that this has been beneficial. But like not everybody, everybody has different outs just as everybody has different ends to, to biology and science and research, right? So like not everybody has to do PhD. If that's not the thing for you, it's not the thing for you. Uh, like there's no shame or like anything in that kind of kind of deal, right? Like so everybody's got to find their own perfect window and it's possible is I guess the other main point is that it's possible for everybody to find their own way into doing kind of science and research. It's possible for everybody to find their own perfect uh, space to do that and it's perfect for everybody to find their own way out. Um, so that's a, a thing that I think is uh, kind of like a lot of people don't like to talk about. Uh, PhDs are often hyped uh, to be better than they are. Like that wing is often hyped to be better than it is necessarily, but everybody's got to find their own fit. Um, yeah. Do you guys have anything to say? That makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense, and I'm not very versed in that field, so I'm just listening and taking taking the advice to heart. But yeah, so uh, you know, I just want to. <laughs> That was, that was very good, very good points. I just want to thank Neil for coming on. I think he did a great job uh, for his first ever like interview. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks for having me. I think everybody did a good job. And, uh, I mean, I think that that's pretty much the episode. 